Welcome to Listeners of Time for another episode of the Slumpbuster Podcast. On today's episode, Kyle and I discuss his latest NBA power rankings. I personally signed my petition to fire Steve Sarkeesian, and we give our predictions on NFL Week 11. But before we get into that, folks, let's give a shout out to our partners, Caveman Coffee Co. Caveman is a fantastic single source, single origin goodness from a company with impeccable taste and ethics. The people behind it are beautiful souls, and the coffee is delicious fuel for the never-ending quest to do better, be better, love harder, and enjoy deeper. Guys, I tell you, their Nitro Cold Brew is the perfect blend of energy and refreshment in the morning. Great way to start the day. But why stop there? They have their Mammoth Blends, which I highly encourage you getting. They have their Hibiscus Teas, which are delicious. And guys, if you use our promo code SLUMP, you get 15% off your next purchase of any of these fantastic products. CavemanCoffeeCo.com, promo code SLUMP. Guys, don't be a chump. Use promo code SLUMP and get yourself a case today. All right, y'all. It's time for the episode. Juju Tech Sports, Kyle Better episode 121. Let's get it. Let's bust the slump and let's enjoy. Kyle, you want to know an ultimate you're getting old storyline, an ultimate changing of the times headline? For the first time since 1999, the Staples Center will not be the Staples Center. It's getting renamed Crypto.com for $700 million. As obviously someone who has been around since 2001, how much of a shock was this to you? Especially someone that grew up a Lakers fan. Yeah, no, this is an interesting time. And one of the games we like to play on Take It Easy is uh, the Name the Stadium game. I'm sure we're going to play that tomorrow now, knowing that the uh, Crypto.com Arena is taking over for the Staples Center. First of all, I was surprised Staples was still willing to spend so much money on uh, on that arena sponsorship. Right? I feel like the- A uh, brick and the, mortar retailer versus the yeah, Bitcoin it, empire that has started. Yeah, I feel like the, the office supply industry is not really doing so hot right now, but Staples was still uh, sponsoring the Staples Center, of course. But yeah, I, I think the changing name thing is interesting. It's obviously fun because we do end up following suit with the name changes over time. But this is a capitalist moment at its best, which is if you can put a name on a stadium, you put a name on a stadium. If it's a cryptocurrency, if it's a talking stick resort arena, if it's a Smoothie King Center, or if it's a Vivint.smart home arena, you put the, uh, the names on there and it changes every now and then. And every 10 years, you kind of got to relearn the name or find some fun around it, like the Miami Marlins calling their stadium the Loan for Loan Depot. You can make fun with this because, yeah, stadium name changes are always interesting and silly because they're just who wants to pay the most for putting their name on a giant building. What is one that you haven't quite acquiesced to? Because obviously, as a Giants fan, they just changed it to Oracle Ballpark, and I'm so used to AT&T. I still call it AT&T, and if you ask the previous generation, of course, they would call it SBC Ballpark. Which is one that still, as much as you know it's been changed, you still call it the old name? I will give you three of them, actually, that I do. So one of them is near and dear to my heart, which is, of course, uh, Qualcomm Stadium down in my hometown of San Diego, which most people don't know because the Chargers left about five years ago now. But uh, it is now called the San Diego County Credit Union Stadium. Qualcomm Stadium technically doesn't exist anymore. They just tore it down last year. But for the last five years, people have still been calling it Qualcomm. The Mariners ballpark, I still call Safeco Field, even though I believe it's T-Mobile now sponsors that one. And the Milwaukee Brewers have a stadium that my entire life was Miller Park. And it was Miller Park and Bernie Brewer would go down the slide. 
ride and all of that. I, I believe it's now American Family Insurance Ballpark. If I remember correctly, it's something like that, but I haven't gotten used to that. I still call it Miller Park. Eventually I'll come around to it, but I haven't corrected that one yet. I think the, the Miami Heat Arena too is now a cryptocurrency as well. And then too, another name change we had earlier in the year was the Atlanta Stadium game named the Caesar Palace Stadium or whatever. NFL or? Yeah, um, I believe it was like the Mercedes-Benz prior to getting renamed oh yeah caesar's yeah, palace the, um, which is odd for atlanta the, obviously the superdome in new orleans yeah. is now the caesar super oh it's the super the Both reason i got that mixed up is mercedes yeah yeah, no, the Mercedes-Benz Superdome and the Mercedes-Benz Stadium were two. This was a joke between Saints and Falcons fans because Saints and Falcons fans hate each other. But for about three years, they had the same sponsor on both of their stadiums. I think another one, too, that I always revert back to is I know the J progressive field for the uh, Cleveland Guardians now. See, not only do you have to get used to the new name, you have to get used to the new stadium names as well there. Oh, I don't know the Cleveland one yet. I don't know what the stadium's name is. Oh, this is going to be fun. I like the guessing game. of I don't know what their stadium name is now. I still think it's progressive. See, we should just do a quiz. I know you mentioned you do a little bit of a game on Take It Easy, but we should do a quiz next week. Actually, screw it. We're going to plan it. Next week, we're going to come with a whole quiz. Name the team, name the ballpark. You down? Yes, absolutely. We've played this game multiple times. It's called Name That Stadium, where we can find wonderful names of different stadiums. Uh, I'll give you a quick one right now. Can you name the Tennessee Titans Stadium? Ooh, I don't even think I knew what it was beforehand, to be honest. Would you like me to give you three options here? Yeah, sure. Multiple choice. It. Multiple choice. So you have A, LP Field, B, Nissan Field, or C, State Farm Field. I think LP, what it used to be, so I'm going to say Nissan. That is correct. It is the Nissan uh, Nissan Field or Nissan Stadium, one of the two. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Do you know what the Jaguars Stadium is now? Not at all. Off the top of my head, I'm probably the worst of it, especially when you mentioned AFC South Stadiums, man. Come on. Here, here's AFC a hint. South? It, is, it is a bank, if that makes it easier. Like TD Bank or something like that? Is TD a thing? Maybe I, I have know. it wrong, actually. What is the name of the Jaguars Stadium now? Let's see if it... No, it is still the same one. It is TIAA Bank Stadium. See, I knew it had a T in there. See, I wouldn't even know if most of these banks existed if it wasn't for stadium naming, to be honest. It's always interesting yep. when some obscure business or obscure company takes over the naming rights of these. I kind of wonder one day when we're going to get the Brazzers owning a stadium. They technically have the money. Oh, uh, this happened a little while ago when the Heat were going to redo it. Bang Bros put up $10 million for the stadium naming rights and people made a design with the arena. Uh, this is a real thing that happened deep in the recesses of Twitter. This is not a joke. They actually tried to do this, but obviously the Miami Heat would not make that a thing. So this has been attempted, but I don't think we're in a place societally i think uh we, we are a more sex positive society but i don't think we're at that place yet i don't think we're that sex positive yet i mean all things considered you know taking the family out to a game at the yard or something like that and you're like going into pornhub stadium i mean there is sex positive but then there's also you know that dividing line of family friendly atmosphere as family friendly as you can get when you have the racist drunken boston yelling out slurs at the players can't wait for only fans to get in on this action too we're getting to a place there. Cryptocurrencies are throwing all their money at it. Eventually, we'll get to a place where you have more obscure ones. This is the case in uh, in Sacramento because theirs is the Golden One Center. Um, if you had to guess what Golden One is, what do you think that is? Golden One, huh? 
I'm going to say something obscure like hemorrhoid cream. That is a little bit obscure. It's not that crazy, but the point is it could be anything and you would still not have any idea outside of Sacramento what it is that that is because it is a local credit union. So if you are outside of the Sacramento area watching a Kings game on national television, which I've only seen one of those in my entire life, but if you're watching a Kings game on national television, you will see Golden One Center and have no idea what it is that they're selling. Where do these local credit unions just get all this dough? I mean, I get a net big national bank but the local credit unions, do they really have that much capital to just be naming stadiums? I mean, obviously $700 million it took for them to buy the Staples Center. That one's though Los Angeles. Like that's the you know, city with 11 million people and a national, it's the Lakers Stadium. Like that one specifically costs a lot of money. I know the Golden One was, I believe, $8 million a year. And the only reason I know this is because some guy for the Kings got fired for like defrauding the Golden One credit union a while back. I know the Petco Park in San Diego for the Padres was uh, 15 million a year, I believe. So if, you, if you're in a smaller city, I think you can get a naming rights deal for somewhere in the 10 to 15 million dollar range. You know, you know, obviously not a uh, insignificant chunk of change, but along with your naming rights deal, you're also purchasing a certain amount of TV advertisements during the season on their games. So like for Padres games, there's a mandated certain number of ads for Petco that comes on on their TV every time. So that's also part of what you're paying for in the stadium naming rights deal if you're crypto.com. I can't wait till PETA bites out Petco. (laughs) Is crypto.com the same company that had that weird commercial with Matt Damon just talking about something and you had no idea what he was selling? Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know. I don't watch a whole lot of television, to be honest, anymore to really keep up with all the advertisements. I think the only advertisements I really know anymore are ones that get shoved down my throat by YouTube or of course Super Bowl ads when they come out. That's fair. I think I've seen the Matt Damon one just on on like football games more than anything else, but it's just it's like Matt Damon talking about pioneers and taking the leap and then at the end you don't know what he's selling and at the very end it's just like buy crypto. <laughs> it's like okay, did not know anything about what you were selling until the very end, but I assume it's it's the same company that just dropped 700 million dollars to rename the Staples Center. It seems to be crypto currencies are throwing their money around like uh, very loosely here. (laughs) All right. Should we actually move on from the naming rights and move on to the actual product on the hardwood? I know you've been taking some comments recently in your power rankings update that I should ask you about here. So Bulls fans may have a case on you here. The number 11 team in your rankings, and yet they are 10 and four currently the second team in the Eastern Conference. To run down your list here for any listeners that haven't got a chance to check out your rankings. So your top 10 teams are as follows. At 10, you have the Wizards. 9, you have the Jazz. Bucks at 8. Lakers at 7. 76ers at 6. Heat at 5. Suns at 4. Nuggets at 3. Nets at 2. And Warriors at 1, which I don't think anyone will have a problem with given their record. Yeah, so I would have the Miami Heat, 76ers, Nets, Bucks, and Wizards technically ahead of the Bulls. So that would put the Bulls as like the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference. And I think if you told Bulls fans at the start of the year, you'd be the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference. That would probably 
probably be a huge victory for the Chicago Bulls, considering where they were a couple of years ago and how they decided that instead of going through a rebuild, they were going to throw two years worth of draft picks, high draft picks, by the way. They gave up, I believe, the number eight pick in the draft this year to Orlando. Um, so give up a bunch of draft picks and $80 million a year in cap space to sign Lonzo Ball, to sign Alex Caruso, to sign DeMar DeRozan, to bring in Nikola Vukovic, who's obviously on a max extension. Uh, and obviously they have Zach Levine on a cheap contract for now, but they may or may not extend Levine this year. I don't know if Levine wants to stay or not, but all of that to say, I think if you had said that if the Bulls are the five or the sixth seed in the East, that would have probably been a big victory for the Chicago Bulls. And the only reason the Bulls are not higher and the only reason the Wizards are not higher is because uh, I do not subscribe to the small sample size rule on this. I need a, a larger sample than 11 games of playing well to determine that a team is actually legitimately good and teams like the Bucks, the Nets, the Lakers, even Miami and even Philadelphia, we know they're good because we know the best player on the those teams are the 10 best players in the NBA. And sometimes the NBA is that simple that we know that team is good because over a long sample size, they're going to have that player. Now, in defense of the Chicago Bulls, DeMar DeRozan is the third leading scorer in the NBA right now. So DeMar DeRozan is having this career revitalization in his 30s and not playing in a Popovich offense. It's been a really interesting change there. And the Bulls surprisingly have still been a pretty good three-point shooting team. Like I'll give them credit for that. It's been surprising surprisingly good for them so far but Bulls fans if you keep this up long enough it's not like I'm anti-Chicago Bulls I know we're going to talk about the uh, the Cincinnati Bengals later but this is kind of the same case where I'm like yeah the Bengals are doing better than I thought the Bulls are doing better than I thought but there's a line in between the Chicago Bulls are better than I thought and the Chicago Bulls are one of the elite teams in the NBA because if you stacked them up in a seven game series against the Nets even without Kyrie Irving the Bucks even as the Bucks have struggled out the gate the 76ers even without Ben eh, maybe with Ben Simmons maybe they would need Ben Simmons or the Miami Heat I'm taking the Miami Heat in those series against the Chicago Bulls so yeah Bulls fans I knew when I put you at 11 you would not be happy about it I kind of regret putting you guys ahead of the Wizards or I'm sorry putting the Wizards ahead of you because I really don't think the Wizards are that good I think the Wizards have just had a really fluky start I mean 10 and 3 you gotta give the Wizards a little bit credit here and their biggest weakness last year was their defense and their top five defense currently according to some metrics so in theory they fixed that and then uh, we know what how good Bradley Bill is a top 10 scorer in the NBA so I could see the argument for having the Wizards ahead of the Bulls I think one of the things I saw in the comments too was people coming out against how are the Bulls ahead of the Lakers and in your defense you sent me your rankings on Sunday night this was before they actually played on Monday. Big game by Alex Caruso and Lonzo Paul in their returns to Los Angeles. With the Lakers, though, you have to admit that the case is starting to grow strong with some of these bad losses. They have losses to the Timberwolves on their schedule. They have losses to Oklahoma City. Some of their wins, they've beaten the Rockets twice and barely gone by the Spurs. I think that's where people are kind of looking at the Lakers. It's, I understand what you're saying. It's We're going off reputation. The Lakers are living off name, seemingly, in the rankings. But based off what we've seen so far to this point in the season the Lakers at seven like where is your true confidence meter in that is it still at sky high at a 10 or have you 
things started to waver a little, especially after Monday's loss. Uh, the Lakers thing, I think, is just that they're hurt. Like, this is the part that seems strange is that they're losing these games because if you take LeBron James off the Lakers, well, that's a team that's, you know, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and a bunch of, like, really old role players. So the Lakers case, it feels explainable because if you put a team of Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and a bunch of old people, that just feels like last year's Wizards, but with Anthony Davis being a slightly better big man option. So yeah, I, I think the Lakers feel explainable for why it's bad. I think if it appeased the masses, I think the Lakers, if you just do it purely based on record, yeah, the Lakers are probably not a, a top 10 team right now. You would probably take Utah or you'd probably take someone else in there. But I feel like doing the wild fluctuations doesn't serve anyone in terms of helping them be, I guess, a smarter sports fan in a way, or at least take something out of it. Because if one week the Lakers are three, the next week they're 16, and the week after that they're six, then I feel like we're not really learning anything there. I think that's why I, I try to avoid like dropping teams like more than eight spots ever in a single week. I think there are a few exceptions to that, like uh, the Pelicans. I did not realize in my initial rankings that Zion was not going to be playing for the majority of the season thus far. And so, you know, everything's falling apart in New Orleans now, and that roster has been poorly constructed. So there, there are a few examples here and there. Uh, the Cavaliers have a really good week. They'll jump a bunch. Phoenix wins eight in a row. They jumped like nine or 10 spots or something like that. So there are a few exceptions in there, but doing the wild fluctuations, I don't think serves people well. Cause at that point, it's just, it's hard to actually gauge who's good and who's not when we're pretty confident, especially in the NBA where having a star player matters so much. It does feel like, well, we still know the Lakers are good when healthy. And if they're not healthy now, we can kind of like take that into account. Like, oh yeah, right now they technically don't have LeBron James. And if you took LeBron James, off the team now they'd probably lose to the jazz they'd probably lose to the suns they'd maybe lose to the nuggets in the playoffs but it's all very complicated and convoluted and there's real concerns for all of these teams that are built around old guys about staying healthy especially the nets and the lakers those dudes need to need to stay healthy if those teams are going to compete and shockingly the Warriors have been kind of the antithesis of that well we do know that LeBron James is scheduled to come back sometime here in this next week now your next rankings update would drop on Sunday November 28th obviously they're already 0-1 since your rankings update against the Bulls their next few games are Bucks Celtics Pistons Knicks, Pacers, Kings, and then Pistons once again. So two Detroit Pistons stretches there. So I'm going to ask you both, one, what would it take for them to jump in the top five? What record would they need in that stretch? And also a record that they would need to jump outside of the top 10. Uh, this is actually a pretty good question. I would say if the Lakers lose enough games to have a worse record than the Portland Trailblazers, they would probably fall out of the top 10. If they were to win most of the games you expect on, like if they lose one to the Kings, so be it. Like it happens over an NBA season. They lose a back-to-back -back somewhere in there in Detroit. It happens. But if, if they win five, six of those eight, then they're probably going to stay where they are, I would guess. I'm also assuming that the Wizards and Bulls will start to fall off a bit because I don't believe that those teams are actually like super good or that Milwaukee will finally turn a corner or something weird like that. But I think it's somewhere in the middle. If the Lakers play the status quo and LeBron James comes back and they win, they'll probably stay there. But Lakers are in a weird place because it's like last year where they were the seven seed and they had to go through that wild card round and it was complicated. And it's the argument against what I say all the time, which is if you are a championship caliber team, the regular season doesn't matter at all in the NBA. But
but at the same time you can't lose too many of them before you kind of look up and you're like oh where where are we at this point yeah counter to that obviously we mentioned the bulls are another team that we're talking about heavily on this podcast their schedule coming up they face the trailblazers the nuggets the knicks pacers rockets magic and then the heat prior to your next update uh what record do they need in that stretch to jump back in the top 10 I think just to be better than the Wizards, right? Unless someone below them has a miraculous stretch of success. Because if I'm, I'm trying to remember now, I think if you go down further, like 13, 14, 15, or teams like the Grizzlies, Blazers are down there. I know the Cavs were 17 because Cavs fans were pissed that they went on a big win streak and I only jumped them up to 17. But those teams in the middle feel like teams we know aren't actually that good. Like the Clippers, we kind of know the Clippers aren't actually that good. I know they're fine, but... But without Kawhi Leonard, they're kind of just a middle of the road Western Conference playoff team. Or as we said in our initial season preview, a wild card hopeful. The Clippers are probably not going to go on a five, six game win streak and climb into the top of the hierarchy. So if you had to pin me down on it today, I think that win for the Bulls probably gets them into the top 10 anyways. And I would say, you know, sorry to the Wizards. And sure, the difference between 11 and 10 is was minuscule. But this is the thing about the NBA this year is there there's like 10 really bad teams like I'm going through this every week I'm like there are 10 teams that really suck or like eight teams that really really suck this year like the Pacers are are mediocre but they kind of suck the Spurs are pretty mediocre I know they've outperformed expectations this year but the Spurs are headed for another missed playoff or exit in the first round or the wild card round not the first round the wild card round Minnesota's not any good although I do love the Ant-Man the Rockets aren't good the Thunder aren't good the Pistons aren't good the Pelicans aren't good like there's a lot of bad teams this year so if you are one of those teams at the top there's going to be a lot of chances to accumulate wins by just beating up on some bad teams well, I'll give a shout out to our colleague here because he was actually the one giving you shit about the Cavaliers here Drew Hagenbaugh Evan Mobley I mean hell he's played better than Jason Tatum this year so good for him you know <laughs> Ricky Rubio Evan obviously Mobley had that big one you great. were talking about a couple of weeks ago oh. too yeah no the, the Cavaliers have definitely overperformed that's for sure. They are well and above their expectations this year. It obviously sucks, obviously, to be supporting a team that's underperformed and seeing the Cavaliers overperform when you see those playoff spots start to dry up. I've seen the conversation too happen. Has the East caught up to the West? Do we finally have pure conference balance? And it's starting to seem it because at least the top teams in the East are just as good as the top teams in the West in my mind. Yeah, the Western Conference just has like a slog of teams that are pretty good, but they they have like one all-star. Like the Western Conference all-star team is going to be a very colorful array this year because it feels like everyone's going to have one all-star uh the western conference like three through ten is just a slog of teams that each have one star player uh the eastern conference has the two best teams the the bucks and the nets obviously Joel Embiid is you know one of the six best players in the NBA right now if you take out Kawhi Leonard because of injury one of the six seven best players in the league Miami Heat have been really good this year I know Tyler Hero is like a minus 800 favorite to win our uh, sixth man of the year at this point because he's averaging 24 points off the bench or something. Miami's been pretty good this year. They were the only team that added an all-star or all-star caliber player this offseason in Kyle Lowry. I guess the Bulls technically added DeRozan. So the the Bulls and the Heat were the only teams that added all-star caliber players. So I would say, yeah, you got some parity there. I wouldn't panic 
if I were you on the Celtics side. Colin Sexton has a torn meniscus. They'll fall. The, the Hornets are not actually that good. You guys are going to be fine. Not good. You guys are going to probably lose in the first round, but it's not going to be another like catastrophic season like last year. See, Jason's just got to stop settling for those fadeaway three-pointers. He actually has to start attacking the basket a little bit more because, yeah, his shooting percentages are garbage. And this is a team that's second in the NBA in isolation plays without the isolation efficiency of obviously being the Brooklyn Nets. If you have Kevin Durant and James Harden on your team, that's forgivable. But when you have inconsistencies from Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, you can't have isolation as much as they do. Their best two-way scorer at this point is Al Horford. Al Horford is our best two-way player at the moment. If that doesn't frighten you as a Celtics fan, I don't know what exactly will. The last team I'll ask you about though before we move on though is I do see that the Mavericks are at 12. Now the Mavericks in the last week they have a quality win over the Nuggets. They've lost to the Heat and Bulls. So I guess I could kind of see where you're coming from here. But they are nine and four. They are third in the West. I will say that by a certain point, when you include the Bucks and Lakers who have subpar records, some teams are going to get, you know, the they're going to get the boot a little bit on that one. Uh, I think the Mavericks have the same record as the 76ers and Heat, who I had, you know, up there pretty high. I think I just couldn't disrespect the Wizards and Bulls that much, like putting them both out of the top 10 in that way because the Mavericks are the exact same team as last year. That's pretty much what I'll say about them. They're literally the exact same team as last year, which is still pretty good because remember, if Luka doesn't have that neck back shoulder injury, they probably beat the Clippers in that first round playoff series and then go on to beat the Utah Jazz in the second round. So there's a scenario where Dallas almost made the conference finals last year and they're still bringing back the exact same team. Luka still has like a 35% usage rate this year. So they haven't given him enough support other than just Tim Hardaway, which is fine. But yeah, Mavericks are probably a top 10 team in the same way that the Bulls are probably a top 10 team, but you can only have 10 teams in the top 10, right? So yeah, Dallas is very good. Literally the exact same team as last year. They, they've changed nothing except bringing in a new head coach. They pretty much run the same offense, same style. It runs through Luka. They're going to be fine this year. Maybe they'll take the next step and win a playoff series. Okay, I got some quick baseball breaking news as I have Ooh. Justin Verlander signing a $25 million one-year deal with the Houston Astros. So we got a little bit of baseball news there. Justin Verlander sticking around for another year at Houston. And I only think it's more interesting because I was hearing there's a little bit of drama behind the scenes with Justin Verlander being in Houston. Like his teammates didn't want him to throw out, I believe, a first pitch for either the ALCS or the World Series. There was both discussions of him throwing out the first pitch there. And reportedly, rather than being kind of like in the locker room, you know how most injured guys are being in the dugout with their teammates. Apparently there was um, some discontent with Justin Verlander kind of being aloof this season, kind of being away from the team while he was recovering from his late season Tommy John on back in 2020, which it sucks the timing of that injury because it essentially took away two years away from Justin Verlander in his later part of his career. Adding him to the Houston Astros rotation in a season in which the Astros are going to have a lot of moving parts. What do you think of this does for their World Series chances next year? Well, I think it doesn't hurt, right? I think Justin Verlander's got something that he can give, considering the Astros were kind of like scrambling for starters after McCullers went out. I'm sure it helps, but how much it helps, I'm not sure. I was I was actually talking about this the other day with uh, Noah Syndergaard and with Jose Berrios, where it's like, both of these moves help indisputably. Like the Blue Jays now have a lockdown number two starter. They're paying $18 million a year to secure that number two starter role, uh, the same way they spent $25 million to secure the center field job. 
job in the leadoff spot with George Springer. Um, that's the strategy they're going to use. I don't know how much it helps, but it certainly doesn't hurt. It's just whether or not the money would be well spent towards something else, which is interesting given that the Carlos Correa situation still remains unresolved in Houston. Now, Houston may go over the luxury tax to keep everyone around. I don't know exactly what their game plan is for that, but it's interesting only because baseball is a is a soft salary capped sport. And it's like having Justin Verlander obviously helps, but how much does it help? We don't really know. Adding Noah Syndergaard helps the Angels, but how much will it help? History says not only bringing starting pitchers to the Angels, but starting pitchers with arm problems to the Angels usually doesn't work. See, it has not worked out really at all since Jared Weaver 10 years ago. So I don't know how much it helps, but I assume it helps some. The Verlander case is interesting though. Also, Brandon Belt, Texas native, signs his qualifying offer. So he will remain in San Francisco for $18 million next year. Speaking of Texas headlines though, was I being hyperbolic when I started the petition to fire Steve Sarkeesian? Because I feel as though I feel a little bit justified after this past weekend, Kyle. Uh, so yeah, to, to take people behind the scenes, uh, I, I quietly petitioned to have the entire podcast be about the University of Texas losing to Kansas this week. If, if I had the creative control, I would have made the entire podcast about the University of Lies. Texas losing to Kansas. <laughs> it is really one of the great things I love about college football, more specifically because it's that program that has the expectations and has the financial resources. It makes it that much better. Like if Kansas breaks the 56 game losing streak against TCU. It's funny. We can laugh at Gary Patterson, but it's not as perfect as it being Texas. Of all the programs, that is the best one you could have possibly chosen to have them be the team that loses to Kansas. So firing Sarkeesian, man, I said it last week. Remember we were talking about the four game losing streak. I was like, I think you get a pass all the way through, but as long as you don't lose to Kansas, if you lose to Kansas, someone's getting fired. I don't know who it is, but some Someone's getting fired at this point if you're Texas. And this is the nature of college football in the transfer portal era, because like I said, you're basically playing with like 70% of Tom Herman's players. And apparently Tom Herman wasn't good enough to keep his job. So if Tom Herman goes eight and four, I don't remember what they went last year. I think seven and three. And also those three losses, mind you, were all one possession games to Iowa State, to Oklahoma, and to TCU. And the TCU game, they lost on a late fumble in the red zone. So at least you're closer with Todd Herman. This year, you're getting blown out by Iowa State. This year, you're giving up three lead scores to Oklahoma, giving up leads to Baylor, giving up leads to Oklahoma State, getting beat by Kansas. By the way, I know you love some fun stats here. This is the first time in Big 12 history that a 30-point dog has won. First time in Big 12 history that has happened, and it's the first time since 1956 that Texas has been on a five-game losing streak. Do you know the last time that Kansas won a game at, what is it, Royals stadium or whatever it is in Texas the last time they won in Texas yeah do you know the last time they won in Texas I believe I heard never it sounds crazy to me to hear never when you think about big 12 rivalries but yes never happened before never and Steve Sarkeesian credit to him for being the trailblazer to finally allow that to happen yes I understand if you want to but as a Florida State maybe a cautionary message is that resources are not infinite Um, so you might be better served just letting Sark ride it out 
out for a few years and see if maybe he can recruit enough to turn it around. Because again, if you were just losing to Iowa with 100% of Tom Herman's players, now you're playing with 60% of Tom Herman's players and the, the occasional Sark guy. I know that one receiver that had like 28 targets is pretty good for Xavier Texas. Worthy. Oh yeah, 23 targets. The guy was a stud. But then you also have stuff like Bijan Robinson's out for the season. So it could only get worse. They might oh, finish yeah. legitimately with four wins. They could lose to West Virginia this week and they could lose to Kansas State next week. And then you're talking about a four and eight team that's not bowl eligible. I mean, bowl eligible is a minimum. 100%. You know, and that, here's the thing. When I look at Sark, I'm not just basing him off of his Texas history. I'm basing him off of everything. I'm basing him off being a mediocre coach at Washington. I'm basing him off being a mediocre coach at USC. I'm basing him off being a mediocre offensive coordinator for the Falcons. And then getting lucky that he gets a job at Alabama when you have Najee Harris, when you have Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Mac Jones, who's looking like the most impressive rookie in the NFL currently. I, I look at that and like, how much credit do I give Steve Sarkeesian for that? To go one step further in the fact that Texas d- couldn't hire Urban Meyer because he turned down seven and a half million dollars. But by that point, they kind of got big eyes about a new coach and so decided that they didn't want Tom Herman anymore. You could take it a step farther. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I feel as though if you were going to fire Todd Herman, it had to be for a legitimate upgrade, a verifiable upgrade, which Urban Meyer would have been. Steve Sarkeesian, could you honestly look at him and say there was that much degrees of separation between him and Todd Herman? That's the thing that I question in the decision making. And I joked about that stat a couple of weeks ago that the Texas University, the Texas Athletic Department is currently paying $20 million to coaches not currently on their payroll at this moment. And that's obviously terrible for an athletic department. But I still think that even though you gave Stark a six-year deal, which by the way, what the hell are you doing giving him a six-year deal? I think that's just insult to injury there. I think the case for firing him is more this. You have a resume that Stark brought into the program. And I think of it like this. If you have a tumor, do you let the tumor get bigger or do you cut it out? And I kind of see Sark as not really something that you want to like kind of leave it to linger in the system. I think it could only do more damage over time. They have to replace 33 players, 33 players. I trust you to go in there and make that happen. I just have a hard time buying into that. And here's the problem. Here's the one problem I would say is just there's two high profile head coaching positions that are currently open outside of Texas that would take away from you in the coaching search. Obviously, USC and LSU, and both seem like more desirable jobs at this point in time than Texas. I mean, you're really taking, you're going to get the third fiddle in terms of choosing who your next coach would be. And out of those options, I'm going to throw out a name. I'm going to throw out a couple names here that I could see being legitimate replacements for Steve Sarkeesian if they decide to go in a different direction. So obviously there's the most high profile ones that you're going to at least throw out offers to. You're going to try and, hey, Urban, Want to reconsider? Maybe. Come on. Jacksonville. Oh, no. There's no chance anymore. I I know. No chance. He burned that one. (laughs) You said he turned down 7 million, 20 million, just something, you know, and the interest of winning. Um, I wouldn't even mind like a Dan Mullins, to be honest. I know Dan Mullins is struggling right now at Florida, but at least he's shown he could win in the SEC, which I think is more than Sark has shown in his ability to win in the Pac-12 conference. I would even say, hey, Chris Peterson, want to come out of retirement? Think about it. I don't know. Get him up. What about Gary Patterson, who just got fired from TCU? I know TCU, also in the Big 12, he was a winning coach, at least. He was a winning coach in the Big 12, and he didn't necessarily have the resources at TCU that he would have at Texas. Or even the UTSA coach, Trailer, who's undefeated right now. That's at least an option. This is the interesting part, which is do you, this, you guys are in what I like to call the Florida State conundrum, 
which is you can cut the tumor away if you think Sark is a tumor. I, I wouldn't go that far even still, but you can cut it away, but it's going to be expensive. And if you don't have insurance, which Texas has some, but they don't have full insurance, you're going to have to pay out of pocket to make it happen. Because I imagine Sark has an even larger buyout than Tom Herman at this point. So if you're going to cut away the tumor, what happens when you don't have the same infinite resources like you used to? To use a, a baseball example, you guys are the New York Yankees. Texas has the second largest athletic budget. It's larger than Ohio State, larger than Alabama, larger than that. But what happens when you pay a Jacoby Ellsbury? What happens when you pay a Giancarlo Stanton? What happens when you have to start running your team like the way the Kansas City Royals run their team? That changes the math a little bit on whether you want to make that kind of financial commitment because the resources don't last forever. And Florida State is the perfect example of that, where they're paying like five different contracts. They're paying Willie Taggart's buyout at Oregon, Willie Taggart's contract, Willie Taggart's buyout at Florida State, Mike Norvell's contract, soon to be Mike Norvell's buyout at Florida State and whoever the next coach is going to be. Like that's the conundrum therein is that the resources don't last forever. And so what happens when you have to start running your program like the way Boston College runs their program or the way Wake Forest runs their program can still succeed. It's just a lot harder to do so. That's kind of the conundrum Texas is in is what happens when you don't have those resources also at a time where you're about to go to a conference where there is infinite resources across the board. And Texas will start collecting some of that money. So maybe you could argue the SEC media deal they're about to get will help them out, but everyone gets the same point. So that means you're already starting from behind against the other SEC schools if a portion of your ESPN TV deal has to go to paying four different coaches, five different buyouts. This is the interesting conundrum here, which is do you wait for the revenue stream to come in a little bit? Do you give Sark a chance or do you, cut bait now and potentially have to cut costs for the next couple of years. And this is an interesting conundrum because Florida State really fell hard. They had their Kansas loss to Jacksonville State earlier this year, and that was like their rock bottom. And they've turned a corner a little bit here. Like the calls for Mike Norvell to be fired have quieted a little bit. But with Florida State, you would say the arrow is pointing in the right direction, whereas with Texas, you're saying the arrow is pointing in the wrong direction. The fact is you took Todd Herman's players, whether you say 60% or 100% of them and you were supposed to build around them you were supposed to make this team stronger with what you had already instead it seems like you're making it worse and now you're going to have to go in and completely rebuild your roster around your guys whatever your guys means and I feel as though is Sark the right guy for a complete roster overhaul I don't think so and you mentioned it what is his buyout 20.6 million dollars as of today that's a hefty sum for you and I for a Texas yeah, boosters I think... program I believe they raised Todd Herman's buyout in a day yeah oh, that's one ad spot of Lincoln cars for Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think if I saw it correctly, I saw I was looking at the USA Today numbers a little bit ago. I think the Texas program as a whole, just the athletic program on its own generates like $90 million in revenue. And that doesn't even include donors who give money to the school. So, you know, it's convoluted. They'll probably go to the donors and ask for the money instead of taking it from the school revenue because they've budgeted stuff in. I think to the point of, is Tom Herman the guy to overhaul the roster? I think it takes time because if you had told me six weeks ago, is the Florida State job moving in the wrong direction or the right direction? I would have said it's it's headed towards rock bottom and they've gone like four and three since then, which is not great, but it means it means they're not as bad as Syracuse, which is weird to talk about. But Florida State changed their expectations instead of trying to be ACC champion. They just tried to be not as bad as Syracuse and North Carolina State and they'll get there eventually.
essentially. But Texas is kind of in that weird place where 10 months ago, Stark was the guy to build the roster. And and again, he has a few freshmen in here, but overwhelmingly the bulk of his recruiting is going to come over the next two years. It's why college coaches never get fired within the first two years of being on the job. And I think that asking him to build a winning roster this quickly uh, is going to be impossible. Maybe it will succeed. Maybe it won't. Uh, I just don't think the sample size is there right now. And he's going to need at least two seasons to to build it out at See, that But point. to go from seven and three to four and eight, I, I feel as though you have to own some of the blame there. You can't just dismiss it as these aren't my guys. They're your team. They are your team. You accepted this team whenever you took the job. And to say, are you a worse coach than Todd Herman? Because that's a legitimate question there. I mean, Todd Herman, hell, four bowl games, four appearances, four wins. Um, at least had this team competitive. I, I think they just made a mistake. And I'm just advocating, I think, admitting you made a mistake and moving on before it hurts the program worse. That, that's kind of where I'm at because I don't think it's going to get better. I, I've said it. I made a bold proclamation that I don't foresee any future in any timeline in which Steve Sarkeesian has more than eight wins in the season at Texas. And that's why you hired him. So, I know you yeah. talk about adjusting expectations but still in the past you have proven that you can take a Texas program to a national championship. I know it seems like an afterthought now, but that is the ceiling. I know the ceiling's dusty. It has cobwebs and needs to be mopped up a little bit here, but you can achieve that. That's not impossible. That's within the range of outcomes. And I don't think Steve Sarkeesian has shown anything in his history to suggest he's that guy. He had a premium program at USC and couldn't touch that. Of course, there was extra stuff going on in the background. I'm not going to plead ignorance to that. But you look at the early headlines coming out of obviously Texas. We, we joked about Pole Assassin last week. We talk about the <laughs> Bo Davis story of that player recording him in the locker room shouting at the players. That's already some noise outside of the locker room that you didn't need in your first year as head coach when you have had a premium job like USC and had the outside noise disrupt your program on the field as well. So that's all the factors that I think is enough. Plus this quarterback thing, the quarterback is going to be ultimately what turns it around for Texas. And I think you've scared off Arch Manning. You're scared off pretty much all other quarterback prospects you can get. So you're going to have to roll with Casey Thompson or Hudson Card and their booty ass cheeks. Yes, that is Hudson Card. And I am not looking forward to another year of having to watch him play. In fact, you look at the Kansas game, they spotted Kansas 14 points just by Hudson Card playing. A fumble that turned into a touchdown, a pick six, and then find you too. The Kansas coach, Lance Leopold, has had less time with his program than Sark has had with his program at Texas. In fact, the quarterback there, I think he's only played about four games. In fact, the guy who caught the game-winning two-point conversion, that was his first game with an offensive snap what does that tell you (laughs) that says a lot to me it's a 30 point dog you shouldn't even be in that game to be down three scores that one that one was bad i will say when i said that that sark had a little pass this year i think the expectation for me was like seven and five middle of the pack in the big 12 like that would have been fine bowl eligible minimum yeah he just didn't hit that expectation and so i think it's not as bad as it seems because it has been really bad like i'm not going to pretend like this is not really really bad for texas like this has been an awful season so far the fact you just you, you didn't even pull one of the upsets against iowa state or bay 
Baylor, Oklahoma State, or Oklahoma. The fact he couldn't even get one is rough, but it's still not the end of the world at all. Losing to Kansas feels like the end of the world. Even if it's really not the end of the world, it, it feels like it is. But to that point, if you cut bait now, you kind of just restart the process over again. Because it this feels like the worst it can get. Imagine being that, but not having the, the FU money to just move on from Sark if you wanted to. Because then that's where things get worse is when you just keep spending money to get rid of it. I think the alternative is like, if you're going to fire Sark anyways, you could wait until you have more money to do so. The, the counterpoint to that is you waste three years of the Texas program, um, just kind of like going in circles, trying to wait for all your mistakes to catch up to you, which is not fun. Like, especially when you have a program that has irrational expectations, it's not fun to have that happen. And that's the the bad part of college football is that once you get stuck in the in the mud a little bit, it's really, really hard to climb out. And talk to Michigan. They haven't won a Big Ten championship in 20 years. Go talk to Nebraska. They're absolutely terrible now because their their success was built on their reputation. And once the reputation went in the sand, they haven't been able to dig it out because who the hell wants to go live in Nebraska? See, but then, then, then I will counter with that then, because you talk about Nebraska going to Lincoln, Nebraska. You talk about Michigan going to Ann Arbor. And then you talk about going to Texas. And as an Austin resident, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but Austin is one of those cities that, I mean, Silicon Valley is moving everything down here, practically. Everyone that is having any trouble in California, they're moving down here. College students, great town to be. 6th Street, Rainy Street, the Domain, Bar Districts, Fun, Rivers, Hiking. There's so many different things down here that this is a great spot to be in, that that's a recruiting pitch in itself. Now, I guess that comes down to what type of players are you appealing to? Do you run the risk of getting some players with less than reputable reputations there that aren't necessarily more interested in football, which I think is part of the problem that they've encountered at Texas. But that is a foot in the door in most high-end players' locker rooms. That part has mattered less, I think, than ever before in terms of the geographic location. Not that it doesn't matter like the way it used to. Like people don't want to live in Nebraska. Totally understandable. People don't want to go live in Missouri. That's understandable. I think it matters less only because one, every game is on national television now. So you don't have to worry about like, will your family be able to watch you play in that situation? Because there aren't like regional markets anymore. And also the best programs are in weird places. Alabama is a weird place to have a really strong program. Athens, Georgia, it's near Atlanta, but it's a, it's a weird place to have a really strong college football program. Columbus, Ohio, weird place to have a strong program. Norman, Oklahoma, weird place to have a really strong program. But you can make up with that with a great coach. That's the thing there. Yes. If you had a great coach in a great area, then you are instantly a school to be reckoned with. If you had just a great coach at USC, then USC is automatically a national championship contender. Tuscaloosa benefits from having an amazing coach, the best coach in college football history. That's why Tuscaloosa, Alabama is a place to go because you know you could get to the pros, you could win national championships, and you're going to get plenty of recognition each and every year. Dabo Sweeney, what he's able to do getting kids to go out there to Death Valley. As long as you have that guy, and I don't think Sark is that guy. That's, yeah. again, going back to the main point, I don't think Sark is that guy. If you just give me someone who's good schematically, personable, and can sell Austin, can sell coming to the University of Texas, I think that you could do some serious damage with this program. It's, Ooh, this it's is a sleeping giant, I believe. Question. 
This is an interesting question of expectation that I proposed on Wednesday's Take It Easy, which is, is Texas a program that can win a national championship anymore? Because there's only five to six programs that really can win a national championship in college football. If you want to count Notre Dame, that's fine too. But can Texas still be one of those places that consistently competes for national championships? Because they're obviously a long, long I, I'm going to go right out the gate. Consistency, I don't think is an expectation to have. You talk about having high expectations, consistently competing for national title. I'll renege on that. But I will say just being in the conversation is something that Texas needs to be able to be able to do. This is interesting because they were there with Tom Herman, right? They won a sugar bowl with Tom Herman. Exactly. This is the confusing part. You're (laughs) winning sugar bowls. You're at least in the thing. I think the overlying point, they made a mistake. If you were going to move off Todd Herman, you had to do it for a legitimate upgrade, a guy who can legitimately compete for a national title. They had the right idea offering Urban Meyer the contract, but they didn't succeed on the execution. And anytime you have to go for your second choice, there's very few times in history in which that has worked out for a program or a team or whatever. I think the only example of that being okay was when the Colts had to hire Frank Reich after Josh McDaniels backed out of him. That's the only time I think that I've legitimately seen that kind of stuff work out, picking your second choice. So I I think that this is just a problem, but I I don't think it's unreasonable expectation because you have shown it. You have a city people want to come to. Hell, the reason B. John Robinson's not entering the transfer portal is he knows there's power and staying in Austin and being a University of Texas running back. There's still a brand there. There still is an opportunity there to market yourself better than the majority of college football programs there is. It's just, you need the right guy driving the ship. I think with Texas, the part is the resources, but resources don't give you everything. Like Texas A&M has a lot of money and they'll never compete at the highest level for national championships. No, you just but... need a CEO who can manage those resources. Yeah, and that'll get you good enough. It's The thing that's interesting with Texas is we've seen it before, right? This is the same thing with Michigan, where Michigan cannot compete for national championships anymore. That's just not, Michigan honestly was never really there, but Michigan's not a program that can be Alabama or can be Ohio State. It just, it just can't exist right now. I mean, Ohio, they can be better than Ohio State, but I'm saying what Ohio State is right now. Michigan can never be that. But at the same time, well, I guess to be fair, there are lucky cases. Like Clemson was a really lucky, case. They got ridiculously lucky in getting there. And that's the thing that everyone holds up is like, we can do what Clemson did, where Clemson was basically Virginia Tech for 20 years and then got lucky and became a national dynasty. You have Michigan State right now who's competing. You have Cincinnati right now who's in the conversation. As much as we think of Oklahoma as increasingly high above Texas, and I'm not one to disagree with that given the results speak for themselves, who's got the better win-loss record in recent history. But you were in that game against Oklahoma. Turn that into a win maybe that changes around the course of history here but if you could beat Oklahoma on a given year and just win out the rest of your schedule suddenly you're in the top 10 conversation yeah and this is the interesting part with Texas is we've seen it before right we've seen them become a national powerhouse I don't know if that's possible anymore if that was just one like fluke in time this is the conversation Miami has all the time which is can we ever be what we once were and the answer is probably no Miami can never be what it was that Miami once was and that's okay you just adjust expectations and you're happy with making a cotton bowl or or making it to a playoff once every 10 years. And you're not competing for national championships, but you can still have teams that you'll come back 10, 15 years later and be like,
like, man, that was really fun, wasn't it? We can celebrate this Sugar Bowl winning team with Sam Ellinger and See, whatever else it might be. I still even think Miami still has an opportunity to do it because I think geographically they're very gifted. I think that that still matters to people, you know, as far as like, if I'm going to choose where to go to college for the next three to four years, don't I want to be somewhere cool, somewhere that I'll enjoy myself? Yes, I know going to the pros is a big part of this equation, but if I can do both, if I can go to the pros and enjoy my time in college, why wouldn't I choose that over going to Desmonoise, Iowa or going to, you know, South Bend, Indiana? <laughs> we can do, we can do that too. How about Lubbock, Texas? That is an awful place to go, but well, that you're not even, I mean, yes, they do occasionally send a guy to the pros, but you go to Lubbock, you know, you're also a bottom end big 12 school who bare minimum, I guess you could say Texas beat them by 60 points, 50 points early in the year. They fired their head coach too. That was funny. They fired their head coach after being five and three, which so is if I have like- to go to Lubbock, Texas, I can't make the pros and I'm going to get my ass kicked on Saturdays. I think that those are three things that I have to factor into the equation. If I can at least enjoy my place of residency where I'm living, have a legitimate opportunity to go into the pros and we can kick ass. I think that that's the thing. Now, the problem is Texas has one of those three. They have a good place to live. Going to the pros, hit or miss. They don't have as many pro guys as that they'd like to think they do. Obviously, they get like Xavier Worthy and B. John Robinson to the NFL. Those are two high-end talents that they could send in the next year, next couple of years. But then obviously, the, the third part of that equation is, can I win? Can I be in big-time, prime-time national games? And yeah. If they could just fit that, which I think if you have two of the three working in your favor, that's a good place to be. This is the difficult part, though, is like not everyone can get to that point, which is why you see Virginia Tech firing their coach after six years. Now, Virginia Tech's been kind of like piss poor average after one year where they made the Orange Bowl, but it's not good enough. Like they're not satisfied being seven and five or being fourth place in the ACC or whatever it is. Or uh, you could go the other way and, and look at TCU with Gary Patterson. Gary Patterson, very quietly, they they didn't even like say it was retirement. Like they just straight fired him. Uh, they said mutually agreed to part ways, but that just means they fired him. And we looked it up with like, why is it that Gary Patterson was getting fired? He was the definition of that program. Well, then you look it up and it's fifth place, seventh place, fifth place, eighth place in the big 12. It's just that the winning dried up and even Gary Patterson was disposable. And so this is the nature of college football is if you're not delivering results, there are other options out there and programs have enough resources now where they can get away with firing coaches but for a program like tcu they never have national championship expectations because they've never won a national championship tcu's best case scenario is hell i don't even know what their best case scenario is ever since they entered the big 12 and entered the power five it's a sugar bowl yeah it's it's to make the sugar bowl it's to play it's to play in the big 12 championship and to make the sugar bowl which if you play in the big 12 championship you at least have a a a puncher's chance of making it to the college football playoff like you're probably not going to get it but making the Sugar Bowl and winning the Sugar Bowl is a huge victory for TCU. They did it with Trayvon Boykin, um, and then they haven't really done it since. There was the one year where they kind of got screwed out of the college football playoff, and Ohio State got in over them, but that was a, you know, we were figuring out how the college football playoff worked at the time. And That's so, another thing there, too. Obviously, the college football playoff, that changing is going to really impact how programs can recruit moving forward, too. Yeah, I, 
think this is true. And this is the interesting place where all of these programs reside. Like, for example, Nebraska, they've won national championships before. Does Nebraska have national championship expectations? Absolutely not. Or at least they shouldn't. If their fans are, that's a little delusional. Same thing with Miami. Miami has national championship in their past, multiple national championships in their past. Do they have expectations now to win a national championship? No, and they probably shouldn't. This is just adjusting your expectations. And Texas has to ask themselves the same question that Florida State is asking themselves is, is respectable good enough? Because 12 months ago, the answer was no. Respectable being, you know, Tom Herman after his first year where he was, you know, going through the reshuffling, he was second place, tied for third, third place in the Big 12 and then got fired. And they decided we want something better than that. And they were going to use Urban Meyer to leverage that situation. And then Urban Meyer turned them down and they kind of just, you know, scrambled a little bit there. But even still, it's it's a decision that if it fails, like you think the Sark decision will, sets back your program years. It's setting back Florida State years. It's set back Miami years to hire Manny Diaz. And now they've fired their athletic director at this point. It's really hard to get ahead in that game. It can, it can set you back years unless you hire the right guy because Mm -hmm. Ohio State, obviously Urban Meyer first year comes in. I believe they make the playoffs in his first year. Nick Saban comes in. Yes, they go six and six, but instantly turn around the next year. And obviously I know a lot of people that are supporting Sark are trying to point out the example. Oh, hey, Nick Saban went six and six in his first year at Alabama. Nick Saban also won a national title at LSU. Yeah, this is, and when you say it's about hiring the right guy, what I hear when that comes in is it's about getting lucky. It's about getting really, really lucky. And this is the difficult part is that the shining example you can point to is Clemson is that Clemson was a mediocre to above average program. They'd finished, you know, third, fourth, third, fourth, fifth in the ACC every year. And then they got Dabo Swinney, who by the way, was the interim coach and wide receivers coach when he first got it. And when they hired Dabo Swinney as the full-time coach, after he spent three games as the interim, they were pissed. They were pissed in Clemson that they hired the wide receivers coach as the head coach they got ridiculously lucky that they got that guy as the head coach and when Dabo leaves the winning will stop at Clemson because it was just a lightning in the bottle really really lucky situation that Clemson had and everyone points to that as the shining example so the way you become that if you're not Alabama Oklahoma Ohio State even Georgia to a certain extent or one of these programs that has a lot of money the way you become the factory that church turns out NFL prospects and because it becomes a national champion is by getting ridiculously lucky. The same way Texas got ridiculously lucky with Mac Brown and having Vince Young as their quarterback. It was a lightning in the bottle moment for the University of Texas. They got really, really lucky. And ever since then, they've been one of these programs that's been trying to find that luck again. I mean, they did get to a national championship that they lost to Alabama in 2010. So it's not that long ago. That's yeah, why I'm like, that's still that's still Mac Brown though, right? I, I think that was still I Mac Brown as coach. I believe because obviously the Charlie Strong era was terrible. Yeah, so look, I take it a step further. You got Vince Young and then you got Colt McCoy as the perfect transition. The same way Dabo had Deshaun Watson in the perfect transition transition was uh, Trevor Lawrence. And that was like the perfect way to keep the dynasty rolling. I mean, see, I feel as though there's only so many programs that have won a national title in the past that you can truly eliminate from ever the possibility of winning a national title again. And most of them are Ivy League schools. I think that- And every, Michigan, and I, Michigan. <laughs> that's just hate, man. They can Michigan, make it this, yeah. I, Michigan's okay. fine. Michigan's like yeah. Oklahoma State now, and that's but fine. But again, that's- we, we talked about it, you know, they have their- problems that they have to overcome because Ann Arbor is it a desirable location probably not 
you know, they don't have the best recruiting pool. So it's probably not the best place to necessarily win a national championship. And then yeah. you talk about like, obviously, Nebraska in the early 90s, the late 90s, the early 2000s there, they just had a good coach. They had a really good coach. So I, or I can point the other way, uh, Penn State with Joe Paterno, which obviously ended poorly, but through the 80s and 90s, that yeah, was just remember the, the positive Joe Pa. <laughs> yeah, you, no, he, great leader. And also, you know, didn't know how to handle sexual assault. But even still, to do that in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania was a lightning in the bottle moment for Penn State that they've they've tried to recapture it. It's why they keep James Franklin around. It's like, it could be a lot worse. Penn State could be like one of these terrible programs in the Big Ten, like Nebraska. It could be a whole lot worse. It's just they're fine being the team that they are. They've adjusted expectations a bit. It's not like they see eight, nine wins and playing in the Citrus Bowl as a disappointment. It's like there's realistic expectations that they've adjusted to it. And Texas is kind of in the weird in-between of that. See, I can see a scenario in which Penn State could if they just won the Big Ten one year, because we've seen that program have some good teams in recent years. They've had generational talents walk through their door like a Saquon Barkley. Going back to like the 60s, I mean, I eliminate like Pittsburgh. I eliminate eh, Birmingham Young, BYU. Of course, I probably eliminate them just because they <laughs> won't get given an opportunity even if it came down to it. Colorado. Hey, BYU's in the Big 12 now. B- Georgia BYU's Tech. technically got a chance. Yeah, <laughs> technically, but even that version of the Big 12, you know, is going to get disrespected when it comes down to yep, the no. committee. It, again, like, it, in the long for run. any of these programs would have to catch the same magic that they got, which could come from the, the program leader, whether it's Bill McCartney or Tom Osborne yeah. or Bobby Bowden. Like maybe you catch that lightning in a bottle coach. Tennessee. And even if you do, mm. yeah, even if you do catch that, co- Tennessee, I think does actually have some level of chance. It's just, they got to get some of the the old voices at the within power that program out. But uh, I mean, you could argue the same thing for Texas. Yeah, but I mean, they're kind of like, I mean, schools in Orange, they're kind of very similar to Austin in terms of, you know, Knoxville. I mean, another again, they were location. they were lightning in a bottle. And the reason like Philip Fulmer didn't leave Tennessee at the first chance he could was because he was from that school. Like, even if you catch lightning in a bottle, it's rare that the coach decides to stay at that program while they do it. And, and Dabo's the exception to that. Like Dabo didn't choose a different job at Clemson because Clemson became somewhat of a destination job. Mel Tucker arrived at Colorado and immediately left for Michigan State. And now Michigan State reportedly today is offering him a $100 million extension to not go coach USC or LSU. And it's just, you have to catch that magic lightning in a bottle. And even then it might be stripped away from you because if Mel Tucker has the choice between Colorado and Michigan State. Colorado is not a destination job, which is really welcome to the world of San Diego State. Welcome to the world of Western Michigan. Welcome to these places where, yeah, you're not in the same game as all these people because any chance you get good, you will be poached by the better program. It sucks. Maybe you'll catch the magic lightning in a bottle, but if your entire fight of being a program is to catch a lightning in the bottle chance, you're going to be disappointed more often than not because it's you have to get real really, really lucky to build a program in modern college football the way that these powerhouses and NFL factories have. Everyone wants to be Clemson if they don't have, you know, Alabama or Ohio State level of resources, but not everyone is going to be Clemson. In fact, almost everyone is not going to be Clemson. Not everyone is going to catch that lightning in a bottle. And some programs have adjusted. Oklahoma State has never been not loyal to Mike Gundy because they're fine with the local guy being the head coach for 20 years and being okay and having every now and then Brandon Whedon's going to beat Andrew Luck in a Fiesta Bowl, but they're 
they're fine with that. I mean, love our troops, but I don't think that Army is going to redeem their 1944-1945 college football national championships. So I think I'll eliminate them from programs that could jump back into contention. Yeah. Okay, I think that that wraps up pretty much the woes of the Texas football program, the struggles of being a program with high expectations. Let's get into... Well, actually, I got some quick breaking news. Breaking news. Robbie Ray just won the AL Cy Young. So that's another quick baseball headline. Now let's get into our NFL breakdown here because uh, we got wow. a long show on our hands right now at this point in time. So yeah, we really do- wanted to talk about Texas. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You brought out the worst into me. I didn't break out the whiskey <laughs> for this one, but just know <laughs> that after the show is over, it's going down. Let's get into the morning game. The first one in the morning we have actually, I think the only morning game we have Colts bills. The bills are a seven point favorite going into this game, coming off a huge bounce back game after having a shocking upset loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars. The bills just decided, okay, we're just going to end the Mike white era. We're just going to end this man's whole career here on the field. Obviously, Mike White didn't play like a number one overall draft pick this past Sunday as the Bills had four interceptions and a fumble against the Jets. They have one of the better defenses and they're going against a Colts team that has been on the rise lately. Speaking of those pesky Jacksonville Jaguars, they actually gave the Colts a little bit of a problem too. So they're actually trending in the good direction as well when you think about what the Jags are doing as that was a one possession game very late. And Carson Wentz, please stop throwing left-handed passes. For the love of God, (laughs) my man, stop it. I don't know what your coaches may be thinking on the sideline, but you just have to not do it. You are not ambidextrous. You are not amphibious. You are not am train. I, I don't know, but ambivalent. You're not any, ambivalent. You are not an ambivalent leader there, but you are starting to become a very good NFL quarterback again. And I have enjoyed watching you play this season aside from the left-handed passes. Okay. This game is very close in my mind. I don't know why Vegas has this as a seven point line. I think that both these teams are very similar in my mind. In fact, if you look at some of their wins and losses, they've lost to and beat similar teams throughout this course of the season. It just so happens that the Bills just seem to put a hammer on the bad teams, except the Jaguars. I am going to say the Bills win this game just because Josh Allen, you know, yes, he's been a little bit up and down this year, but so has the Colts defense. The Colts passing defense is a bottom third passing defense. The Bills defense allows over 5.7 yards per attempt on their defense. So I think that that's good enough to slow down the Colts passing attack. So good defense, good passing attack going against a mediocre pass defense. I think that those are all the right recipes for the Bills to win this game. And I think it's going to be a little bit closer, but you know, just don't say I didn't tell you. Yeah. Reminder last year that the Colts should have been up 21 to three at halftime against the Bills in the playoffs. If Rodrigo Blankenship doesn't miss a field goal and they don't get stuffed three consecutive times at the goal line. So last year, the Colts game plan just totally stifled the Buffalo Bills. I know it's a different Colts team and a different Bills team this year, but reminder, the Colts did match up very, very well against Buffalo last year. To go back to something you said before, Mike White is just the new Gardner Minshew, right? That's pretty much what just happened. In there, right? He, he was basically just Minshew for two magical weeks and we all fell in love with him. And then he proved to be an undrafted rookie quarterback that nobody knew three weeks ago. See, I think his candle burned a little bit brighter than Minshew's as it seems like that era ended awfully quickly. I would have remember the that Jake Luton started a game instead of uh, Minshew one time. So true. It, but I would have loved the controversy if Mike White was still balling and the Jets suddenly have to decide between the guy that was undrafted and the guy that they drafted at number two overall sadly it was not meant to be one little thing I want to throw in too before you really jump into your analysis uh DeForest Buckner might miss this game as he has both abdomen 
neck and back issues. He played through it last week, but he is in danger of missing this week when he heard three injuries on the injury report there. And then also Quiddy Payne got his first NFL sack this week against Jacksonville. But mind you, obviously going against a much better offensive line in the Bills. Yeah. Uh, those are all statistics and information that is correct. I'm going to do the rare thing here on the podcast to do the uh, equivalent of betting green on roulette. And I am going to take the Buffalo Bills by exactly seven points. So I am betting on a push on the spread this week because that feels like a perfect line for this football game is the Buffalo Bills winning by about a touchdown because the Buffalo Bills are about a touchdown better than the Indianapolis Colts on paper. Uh, and that is the best analysis I can give you around this game is that they are about a touchdown better than the Indianapolis Colts. I will say Jonathan Taylor against the Bills rushing defense will be a fascinating matchup because if Jonathan Taylor does go bonkers, it means the Colts will probably dominate time of possession, which means the game could be closer, which means the Colts have a chance to swipe it at the very end. And if their defense forces turnovers against Josh Allen, anyone can pull an upset as long as you get turnovers. Just look at what happened in Washington last week. If you generate enough turnovers, anyone can pull any upset on any given week. You did mention that uh, the Bills have the third best rushing defense currently in the NFL. So yeah, Jonathan Taylor definitely does have a task as the NFL's leading runner. That is the formula for the Colts to pull the upset in this win. But we are both on the Bills. So I think that that's about the analysis that you need heading into NFL Sunday. Let's move into the afternoon slate. So we have a couple teams here that are spiraling. At least one is coming off by week. The Bengals are heading into Las Vegas and the Raiders are one point favorites on their home field. The Bengals allowed 75 points in their last two games prior to the bye week. They lost to the Jets, man. We, we just talked about the Mike White era ending. That was the quarterback that threw for 400 yards, three passing touchdowns on them. The Raiders, and we'll get into Patrick Mahomes, but the Raiders finally allowed the Chiefs offense to unload. And you're starting to wonder now, is the headline starting to become a little bit too much for them? The John Gruden thing, the Henry Ruggs thing, the David Arnett thing. A team could only overcome so much. I will and- say, I think the thing that's affecting them more than anything else is just the Raiders weren't actually as good as we thought we were thing, which happens every single year, regardless of scandal. It's just the Raiders are never as good as we actually think they are. It's the reason I picked the Chiefs last week was only on the basis of the Raiders are not allowed to be legitimately good. And I was correct. See, aside from the game against the Chiefs, the Raiders have still remained a top 10 passing defense. So they have gotten better. They have made significant strides. Now you're just starting to see parts of this offense start to unravel. You lose a big, I know we haven't really talked about Henry Ruggs from much of an actual football standpoint, but losing him on the field is not nothing. He was still the fastest wide receiver in the National Football League. So just losing that dynamicism, losing that big play threat, and then replacing him with a 35-year-old or whatever, Deshaun Jackson, who's making the most absurd fumble. I mean, I talk about (laughs) stupid interceptions, but you talk about Deshaun Jackson's fumble there in the Sunday night game too. Just as bad, when you have wide open space, you should be scoring easy, and that happens. Incredible. I mean, this is only the second time in Deshaun Jackson's career that he's had a surefire touchdown turn into disaster. I'm going to let you pick first on this one. I want to see what direction you go with it. Yeah, this is this is an interesting choice here because I think these teams are incredibly evenly matched. I, w- I was going to pick the opposite of whatever you picked on this one, but now you're doing the classic Bill Belichick game theory situation. Uh, I've been reading the book by Seth Wickersham, or at least listening to the audio book. So one of the, the biggest Belichickian ideas is let your opponent make the mistake more than anything else. Is If you let your opponent go on long enough, they will be the one who makes the, the mistake. And when they make the mistake, you capitalize on that situation. So 
well played on the game theory on your part here. I'm going to just, you know, flip a coin on this one and see what to do. Um, I think that is the best chance for me to get this one correct. So uh, heads is going to be for the Bengals on a standard quarter. Heads for the Bengals, tails for the Raiders. Let's see what happens. You're an audio only listener. Kyle is picking up the quarter. You probably heard it fall yes, to the ground. You you probably did. And uh, I have the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, according to this, because uh, I have no idea who's going to win this football game. Uh, they are very evenly matched. I know uh, Joe Burrow and Derek Carr have gotten a lot of uh, comparisons so far this season. And uh, it is very interesting how the season has gone so far for the Bengals, where I get branded the Bengals hater, and uh, then they win, and I say they are better than I thought they would be, and then they lose a couple games. And I have taken a victory lap only for the wrestling character persona of being a Bengals hater. But to be honest, the Bengals have still been better than I thought they would be this year. The fact that they're fighting for a playoff spot. Again, if you told Bengals fans coming into the season, you're going to be fighting for a playoff spot in December. That would be a victory for the Bengals from where they started out last year. And so as same situation with the Chargers right now, who we'll get to later, this would, and I guess even the Raiders to a certain extent, because some people said the Raiders would be really bad this year like myself but even still I think the Cincinnati Bengals are in an interesting place I don't know if bye week helps or not I think this is a matchup dictated game and I don't know exactly how these matchups are going to mess things up because you mentioned that Raiders have improved their pass defense even while losing Damon Arnett and having uh, Jonathan Abram being hurt for a bunch of the season and for the Kansas City Chiefs just torching them last week for you know 350 yards and five touchdowns from Patrick Mahomes all of that to say I just don't know how that's going to work out does Jamar Chase fill the Tyree kill role do they game plan differently coming into this week and emphasize taking away the deep ball uh does T Higgins play in this game I think he's going to play but I know he's been battling injuries back and forth here for the past few weeks so all of that is really interesting on the Raiders side of things do the Raiders want to establish the run do they want to get Josh Jacobs and Kenyon Drake involved early or do they want to try and throw the ball and use the pass like the run there's so many variables I don't know how this game's going to go I just flipped a coin for it and I'm taking the Cincinnati Bengals because that's what the coin flip said to do <laughs> you know the gamesmanship angle would have worked better if I didn't agree with you because I am actually going with the Bengals as well just ah, kind of like yes. reviewing some statistics on it I was blown away by the point differentials between both these teams for example the Bengals are plus 33 right now whereas the Raiders are minus 20 so I guess if you're talking about the Raiders being a team that's worse than we perceive them as that would be the ultimate thing in the Raiders detriment I would also say that the Bengals where their defense has struggled in recent weeks is their ability to maintain pass coverage for their quarterbacks to stick on wide receivers. And that's going to be something that's not as much of a concern when you go against the Raiders because the Bengals early on had a good pass rush in the season. The Raiders have a bottom third offensive line. So I think coming off the bye week, their legs are fresh. I think the Bengals can apply more of a pass rush this week, and that's going to allow them to make things very difficult for the Raiders to move the ball. I think it's going to be a lot of check downs, a lot of dump offs to Darren Waller, Josh Jacobs, the running backs, but I don't think the Raiders are going to be able to develop anything deep because I think the Bengals are going to get great pass rush this week. The X factor you mentioned is how are Gus Bradley and the Raiders going to take away Jamar Chase. When it comes to Jamar, when you look at the two games that the Bengals lost prior to the bye week, he had less than 50 receiving yards. So 
clearly teams are planning around taking away Jamar Chase from the equation, similar to we talked about the Chargers take away Mike Williams or the Chiefs take away Tyreek deep. So if Jamar Chase gets taken out of the equation, that's the Raiders' opportunity to at least have some success. But then that leaves the important factors. Okay, how are you guarding T. Higgins? How are you guarding Tyler Boyd? How are you stopping Joe Mixon with a below average run defense? And I think that's where the Bengals win this game. Yeah, it's, it's ironic that you mentioned all those people because I have Jamar Chase, Mike Williams, and Patrick Mahomes on my fantasy football team, which thank you, Mahomes, for breaking my two-game losing streak. It I'm with it. Beautiful. I am so with it. As much as I would have loved to go 5-0 and in the pick'em last week, I needed those five Patrick Mahomes touchdowns a little bit more in my fantasy lineups. Yeah, no, I, again, I was, I, I knew it had to be correct is like, just on the basis of the Raiders are never allowed to be legitimately good. They will lose that game to the chiefs. And I was right that the Raiders are not allowed to be good. And I am tempted to pivot on this one, but I will respect the beauty of the coin and the coin will tell me best on this one, which one to pick. Okay. Well, right now, you know, at least we're on the same game. So no way of separating in the pick which could be a strategy for you too. I think you have a couple game advantage. I'll actually have to go back and do the math here later. Let's move yeah, into I, the Cowboys I, and chiefs, which who knows? That might be a game in which we disagree on. The Chiefs are currently two and a half point favorites in Arrowhead. We talked about Mahomes having that resurgence. One statistic I came across that I found just absurd. You want to know how many games the Chiefs have lost since 2015 against the AFC West? Against the AFC West. Well, let me let me go back and think because I know Phillip Rivers beat Mahomes once. I don't think there's very many after that, but I know Herbert won this year. Raiders split Uh, last year. That's right. That's right. Derek Carr won a game in Arrowhead last year. That was the only game that Patrick Mahomes lost from his 2019 injury until the Super Bowl, which is a remarkable stat that he was 26 and one after recovering from his injury in 2019. Um, Chargers won a garbage one last year, a week 17 game. Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. That's four. I think that's it. Let's say four. Actually seven, but still since 2015, that is a crazy stat. That is crazy ownage against one division. In fact, when you think about the Chiefs winning six straight AFC West titles, that's a big part of the equation. It's a very simple equation there. Win in your division and you'll win the division. And that's what the Chiefs have been able to do very well over the last few years. They are going against a Cowboys team that has had up and down two weeks. Obviously, I talked about being down against the Broncos by 30 to zero at one point with five minutes left to go and then pounding the Atlanta Falcons into the dirt. What was it? 41 to six or something insane. Was that it was 36, three at halftime. I know that. Yeah, I know it was 28 to three at one point. So Falcons fans got a double burn when they had to look up at that game score. But there are some X factors to this game that I look at. My, my main thing is, do I just look at what the Chiefs did Sunday night and just instantly throw away everything I saw over the previous last month? Do I just disregard it like it never happened? The Chiefs are back now. The NFL is right. Chiefs at the top of the AFC. Or do I realize that that is a very big part of this team as they continue to get better and improve throughout the season? And I look at the Cowboys. Maybe do I give them a little bit of a pass for coming out week off of Dak Prescott with the calf strain? The Broncos were just a bad week going into that game. I believe it was in Jerry World, right? The Broncos won and the Falcons won. We're both in Jerry Okay, World. so they've got to be home for the last couple of weeks. This is the first game that they have to go on the road. I would say this. So the Cowboys get a little bit of relief because they might get Tyron Smith back this week. So their offensive line is going to get a huge boost. The Chiefs have only had 14 sacks on the year. And the Chiefs, obviously, even though they have shown signs of improvement, are still in the bottom third when it comes to most defensive metrics, both as a rushing defense and as a passing defense. Aside from that Broncos game, the Cowboys have been in the majority of games. I'm going to take the Cowboys to win in Arrowhead. 
See, I was leaning with you on this one, and uh, I'm tempted to pick another coin flip game on this one, but uh, I will be the the gentleman game theorist and roll with the Kansas City Chiefs against the Dallas Cowboys, because if you're going to give me a favorite and have a chance to take a lead against you, I will commend you if you get the pick correct, and if not, I will roll with my man Patty Mahomes. Uh, This is an interesting game just because the Cowboys have been one of the best turnover-generating teams this season. I know they haven't had as many in the past couple weeks, both the Broncos game in the Falcons game. Should we name drop? Trevon Diggs has eight interceptions in nine games. Yep, but it was also like seven and six. So he's he's he went like three weeks without having one in there. But uh, he did have one against Matt Ryan last week. Uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the the rotting corpse of Matt Ryan, as we've been calling him throughout the season. He did have one of those. So this is interesting because they generate a lot of turnovers, and Kansas City's had turnover problems this year, of course, with Patrick Mahomes. I've watched these last two Chiefs games more closely than I've watched the Chiefs all throughout the season because the Packers Chiefs game was the game of the week and Chiefs Raiders happened to be on Sunday night and we were recording a podcast in between but I was still watching it pretty closely and Andy Reid's fingerprints have been all over each of these last two games because they've played very much to the weaknesses of the opponent they're playing if you put those two games side by side between the Raiders and the Packers it was like two totally different offenses when you're watching Mahomes basically the only time he throws the ball is to use the pass like the run and they basically ran the ball the entire game because well the Packers aren't great at stopping the run but they're really really good at stopping the pass as we saw by I think the Packers have the best secondary in the NFL at this point giving up zero points to the Seahawks and giving up 14 to the Chiefs but the Chiefs just dominated time of possession and didn't let Mahomes commit the costly turnover that would bring them down later and then against the Raiders the Raiders brought down Jonathan Abram as a blitzing safety and the Chiefs kind of just took advantage of that it was like the Chiefs that we're used to like the Raiders game was classic Chiefs where it's like Terry Kill is the deep threat and if you don't put a guy back there they'll hit him getting away from a defender and then they'll go to Kelsey in the middle of the field and they'll work in these other fast guys like Meikle Hardman and Jerick McKinnon and all of that it felt like a classic Chiefs game there so I guess maybe Andy Reid has bought up some points with me right now and that he'll bring a similar type of strong strategy to the Cowboys defense which the Cowboys have blitzed a lot this season and I think they'll continue to do that because the Chiefs offensive line is somewhat fragmented and if you want to get Mahomes moving that can be better because we know Mahomes has been dealing with foot injuries over the past couple years so I honestly don't know what the game plan is going to be as football has taught us some of these things can be quite random but there is a path to victory for the Cowboys other than just me saying the classic thing of the Chiefs score 30 points and we bat an eye at it so they'll score 35 against the Cowboys because the Cowboys defense isn't actually as good as it seems there is a path to victory for Dallas very much so and I think it involves a classic Cowboys game of both teams scoring in the 30s and generating turnovers against the Kansas City Chiefs. I would say the X factor there, and this is a guy that's earned a lot of equity for potentially getting another head coaching job in the NFL. Dan Quinn has really turned around this defense. You talk about obviously the turnovers being a big part of it. See, obviously you mentioned too, the Chiefs are a team that when they were struggling at their lowest point this season, they were just turning over the ball at a insane clip, not something unnatural for their standards. And I, I could see a situation in which Dallas 
Dallas forces a couple turnovers here. And the fact that they can put up points and they should have no trouble putting up points against this Kansas City defense. They should be able to run the ball with Zeke. They should get Tony Pollard involved. I don't see anyone on that roster who's covering C.D. Lamb or Amari Cooper. I just think that that is so many things that are working in the Cowboys' favor. And again, if they get Tyron Smith back out there, then they just have all things lining up for them to win this game. Yeah, I have the Cowboys. You have the Chiefs. So that's our first big disagreement of the week. Let's get into a NFC West matchup here. We have the Cardinals as two and a half point road favorites going into Seattle. So this is the first time. So last week was the first time in Russell Wilson's career that he was shut out in a game he started. But it's not unnatural for Russ to lose at Lambeau as he actually moved to 0-5 in his career games in Green Bay. I think a big storyline for this game that basically might throw off our picks, I don't know which way you're leaning on it, is Kyler Murray is still questionable to start this game. He says he's close. He practiced today. DeAndre Hopkins didn't practice today, but it's looking like it could be another Colt McCoy game. And then factor in that Colt McCoy actually had a little bit of an injury himself. Now he's playing through it, but that is something that could potentially spring up during the game and is something that you have to keep in mind. All to say, Colt McCoy did win in Seattle last year. You have made it a point to list that on the podcast a couple times when 13 for oh, 22 you, you, under you five mean yards the fact that uh, Colt McCoy and Alfred Morris won a game in Seattle last year for the New York Giants? Yeah. Yes. Yes. This isn't your typical Seattle Seahawks who just instantly went at home in Seattle, albeit in their career, Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll, when they've been together, are seven and four as home underdogs for the simple fact that I don't know who's going to be playing quarterback for the Cardinals on Sunday. I will go with the Seahawks. I will write off what happened last week to the Seahawks as rust for Russ, because you don't see Russell Wilson play that bad ever. He just didn't look like he had the pocket awareness that he usually does to scramble and make some big plays happen. In fact, he misinterpreted some throws that he usually makes. Like for example, when he got picked at the corner of the end zone last week against the Packers. So I I think that as he plays more games and gets readjusted to the offense, the Seahawks are going to be a dangerous team down the stretch with no real separation in this NL wildcard picture. And I think that this is the opportunity for them to get right and at least take advantage of a winning situation where they might not see the best players on the field. And even if Kyler is in this game, I will add that I could see him having a similar thing to what Russ had to go through a rusty week in which he just needs to get re antiquated to the offense. And maybe also given that he has a lower ankle sprain is a little uncomfortable moving around in the pocket. I think it's more likely that the Cardinals sit him just because they have a bye week next week. I think that would be the wise thing to do. But for those factors, I do have to say that the Seahawks should get the win, even being a home underdog. Also, quick fun fact, Jamal Adams got his first interception for the first time in two years. So, woo, shout out to you, Jamal Adams. Yes, I, I feel weird every time the internet does Jamal Adams stuff because I'm like, I don't know why we dump on him for being a linebacker. I'm like, he's a really, really good linebacker. It's you have just to play the safe. thing, you know, he does play safe. You know, yeah, he, I what know. is it? You know? I get no I get why people do it I just don't know why it's a bad thing that it, he's a really good linebacker like, he's just, yeah the trade fair. you know he, he got traded for two first round picks that's fair you got you traded two first round picks for a top 10 pass rusher that's kind of where I guess it's at all of that is interesting what's fun in the case of this game is not knowing what the quarterback is remember uh going back I would say two three weeks ago when we were doing the podcast and you talked about you know the, can the Cardinals make it without Kyler Murray I think this was right before the 49ers game. So this would be two weeks ago. And as I said at the time, Cardinals could go a month without Kyler Murray. They'd be fine. The regular season at this point is not wholly, it's not irrelevant, but for the Cardinals, they're going to be either NFC West champions 
or the fifth seed in the NFC. It's going to be one of those two options. Maybe they'd like the home field advantage. Maybe they wouldn't. But if they had to exchange Kyler Murray getting fully healthy and trading home field advantage for that, I think they'd probably make that trade because if you don't have Kyler Murray and now they don't have J.J. Watt and obviously DeAndre Hopkins is battling injuries. If you don't have those guys, you've got no chance as we saw the Carolina Panthers do when they dismantled them this week, which was a weird result nonetheless, but that felt more like the Arizona Cardinals than the 49ers game felt like the Arizona Cardinals without Kyler Murray and without DeAndre Hopkins. That felt more like a representation. Well, I guess I should throw in J.J. Watt. Without Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins, or J.J. Watt, that felt more like a representative version of the Cardinals. Where they probably stand is somewhere in between, which is a fine team, a team that can get by, which is why I felt like they could make it uh, a month without Kyler Murray. And I think that's probably what they do. If he plays, cool. Uh, If he doesn't play, cool. They'll get the bye week. He'll get more healthy. I'm sure these guys are all battling injuries at this point. Similarly to Russell Wilson, like if you've heard the talk from his doctor, like someone who's like a hand specialist is like, it's amazing that he's playing right now. The the fact that he's good enough to play with all the plates and screws in his finger for the past month or so, like it's like a Russell Wilson saying, I'm going to get back on the field no matter what, being the company man of like, as soon as the team doctor clears me, I'm going to give it everything I have. I want to play as soon as possible, which good, bad, whatever it might be. Russell Wilson could re-injure the hand or have a performance like the Packers where he's just not ready to play and they just go up against a really good defense and gets, you know, zero points, even though it felt like they were always going into score, but then they would like turn it over on fourth down or get an interception in the end zone. Like it felt like they were always going into score, but they never actually scored during that game. Yeah, so very sloppy game. I think that's Russell Wilson not being healthy and the Packers having the best secondary in the NFL for the most part. So again, this is a worse combination of we don't know who's going to be healthy in this game and picking Seahawks games, which I believe I'm like 0-3 or 0-4 on this season in trying to pick. So I'm tempted to just pick the same thing as you, but then I uh, embrace the Lane Kiffin, Dan Campbell, Brandon Staley mindset that punting is for cowards. You should never punt. Uh, If it's fourth and nine in your own territory, you're going for it. Uh, If you're Frank Reich and it's a tie game, against the Texans, but there's two minutes left. You're not playing for ties. You're playing for wins. Uh, so you're going for it. If you're Man Campbell, this is an amazing, my favorite stat of the entire week because uh, we're not going to talk about the Lions because why would we talk about the Lions? My favorite stat of the week is that the Lions have gone on fourth down 25 times this year, which is five more than the next closest team while also being 27th in the NFL in fourth down conversion rates. I have seen Jared Goff not once but twice throw the ball away on fourth and four this season. Just decide I'd rather just throw it away and give them the ball than make an interception. All of that to say, punting is for cowards. I'm going to take the Arizona Cardinals on the off chance that Kyler Murray or DeAndre Hopkins plays in this game because if they don't play, I do like the Seahawks chances. So punting is for cowards. I'm going to take the Arizona Cardinals in this game. (laughs) That is definitely a phrase that I'm more than happy to adopt. Hunting is for cowards. Shoot your shot. Bet on yourself. Yes. Or bet there are, on there are five Murray's coaches. Health. Five coaches at this point get to be in the punting is for cowards club. It's Lane Kiffin. It's Cliff Kingsbury, Frank Reich, Brandon Staley, and Man Campbell. That is the punting is for cowards club as things currently stand. <laughs> You know, that game is tough to predict because obviously we don't know what's going to happen at the quarterback position almost as much as our next game is to predict because we also don't know what's going to happen at the quarterback position. We have the Steelers at the Chargers. Five and a half point favorites are the Chargers heading into this game with Ben Roethlisberger 
He was ruled out, I believe, Saturday of last week. I want to say he's vaccinated, or at least the way people have talked about it, it seemed like he's vaccinated to the point where he just needs two negative tests within 24 hours to be able to be able to suit up on Sunday. However, as of this recording on a Wednesday, we still don't know what that is. Now, juxtapose that to the fact that the Chargers actually have Joey Bosa and Jerry Tillery, who just got placed on the COVID-19 list as well. So you have a situation in which we have multiple star players who could miss. But as of this recording, we don't know whether or not they're going to miss this game. Add in TJ Watt, also dealing with the hip injury. Add in Joe Hayden, dealing with a foot injury. So some major game breakers here. And if Mason Rudolph is out there playing on Sunday, one thing I can guarantee out the gate is that I believe the Chargers will win this game. And I'm just going to have to say I believe the Chargers will win this game because I just don't know what's going to happen in the quarterback position. Even if you told me all those players didn't play, the fact that the quarterback is the most important of those positions, not on the field, I think is the ultimate deal breaker as far as picking the Steelers to win this. Although I will say it's going to be funny because we always joke about the Chargers not having home field, you know, legacy franchise franchise like the Steelers are definitely going to pack it in at SoFi Stadium. I think that this is going to be a week in which Justin Herbert might have to use the silent count at home, which is always a fun nuance of the game there. Uh, Justin Herbert, though, he has been struggling. I think that that's something worth talking about. Three of his last four games, he's had a passer rating under 75. Um, he's also failed to throw for 200 yards against a Vikings defense that you called on the podcast last week, Bear Booty Ass Cheeks. That is one of the things that Justin Herbert, even against a Mike Zimmer defense that is struggling, was not able to take advantage of and people are starting to come in hot people are starting to wonder is Staley doing enough there but again it's early I'll give him a break here for now this is the obligatory time to mention of course also the Chargers have one of the worst run defenses in the league 31st currently in football allowing almost five yards per carry and they do have to go against Najee Harris Again, I really wish I knew Big Ben's status prior to this recording, because if I had Big Ben's status, knowing what I know about Najee Harris, the Chargers run defense, how much that Justin Herbert's been struggling against a top defense, which the Steelers are a top defense with a veteran head coach, I would go with the Steelers on the road. But for the simple fact that Mason Rudolph could put on a helmet on Sunday, I have to go with the Chargers. So I guess to to get this off my chest, first and foremost, uh, I would like to formally apologize to the Minnesota Vikings fans out here, simply because I looked up the DVOA numbers after last week's game. Minnesota Vikings, currently the ninth ranked defense, according to DVOA, which is the football outsider stat that ranks defenses. It's not perfect. Like Buffalo's still number one because of that stretch they had at the start of the season, but better than I thought. Congratulations to the Vikings. You had, in fairness to you, I mean, Daniel Hunter went down just like last week too, or two weeks ago. So- that but they were not the as bad as I thought. Yeah, I I am sorry to Vikings fans. I, I Bare booty ass cheeks is something that is very reserved. When we mention this on the podcast or any podcast, we, we say it with very important intent. Whenever we talk about things that are bare booty ass cheeks, we, we want to be very particular about when we use this. And, and it was undeserved. It was uncalled for. And I would like to apologize to Vikings fans here on the podcast because your defense is better than I thought it was. Also, if you're listening to this, I'd go back to that podcast because I talked a lot about the why Justin Herbert hasn't been playing as well over the last few weeks. I think a lot of that still applies, which brings me to the Steelers, which is the way that I started the NFL Monday pod this week, which is we've been making Big Ben jokes for about two years We've called him Jimmy Garothlisberger last year. He might be bad, but he's not Mason Rudolph bad. And that's something that if you weren't sure about, you feel very damn sure about now. Want to know Steelers fans' nickname for Mason? Mediocre Mason, which 
is fair. I, I mean, he might be an okay NFL starter if you gave him a full 16 game season. No, we did that already. Okay. We did that two okay. years ago. I'm saying, no. again, mediocre. <laughs> he, he, he got benched for Duck Hodges. I, I think we just always will associate him getting pounded over the head with a helmet. And I think that's always going to be a part. But then you also have to remember that he has, I don't even want to look at the stat line. They tied the Lions. I think I'm bearing the lead here. They tied against the Detroit Lions. Finished yeah. with a 71 passer rating in that game, which is uh, Sam Darnold's average on the season. So that tells you what you need to know about Mason Rudolph. It's not good. It's not good. It's not a good time to be Mason Rudolph. The other thing I will associate him with forever is getting benched for a man named Duck Hodges, um, who, by the way, is not on an NFL Max. team right now. That will be also, and also the tying the Lions. Those will be the things I associate with Mason Rudolph forever. Is Miles Garrett benched for Duck Hodges and tying the Lions. That will be Mason Rudolph forever and ever. Remember when Ben Roethlisberger was in a pissy mood because of how they drafted Mason Rudolph? Maybe that was something that looking back with hindsight being 2020, it's like, oh, you know, maybe Ben was right. Maybe he was onto something here about this kid just, you know, not being good. Even a 40-year-old Ben Roethlisberger, better than Mason Rudolph, as you mentioned. Yeah, Ben is one of the worst starters in the NFL, but Mason Rudolph is not a starter in the NFL, which is, an, a, by the way, to bury the lead on that, that is a damning indictment of the Steelers organization that they have not done anything at all to address the quarterback position when they have, as you said, a top defense in the NFL, that gift of Najee Harris and all of those skill position players. Like it's an absolute damning indictment of the organization that they have not gone to address the quarterback position. But at the same time, they're a fine football team. They're going to be like the Falcons this year and they're going to be like desperately fighting to get to eight wins by the end of the season. And they're not going to make the playoffs this year, which is, you know, the Steelers have missed the playoffs before but it's usually like they're fighting till the last week of the season for it and this year feels like they're not that team at all maybe they sneak their way in in the weird AFC playoff picture because the Bengals just start losing all these games with their hard schedule that I kept trying to tell everyone about all season uh, maybe they fall off at the end or maybe the Chargers keep fading and you have to have real conversations about Justin Herbert or the Browns battle injuries and Baker gets ruled out for the season like maybe there's a weird way the Steelers sneak in but they're not a, they're not a playoff team all of that to say, I'm going to take the Chargers this week. I know that was a long convoluted way to get there uh, because I just don't trust the Steelers at this point. And if Big Ben were in, I think I'd move the line closer than five and a half. I think this is banking on the possibility that he doesn't play. I think if he plays, it's probably more like a two and a half point spread in favor of the Chargers. So I think like you talked about, it's not unheard of that the Steelers go into SoFi and win. But at the same time, I just don't feel confident enough to do it. I know we played the punting is for cowards game in the last segment, but I just don't feel good about the Steelers. Maybe this is the week Mike Williams finally breaks out for my fantasy team. Yeah, there's even more Steelers injuries too. Both their starting guards might be out this game. Chase Claypool might be out this game. It's a lengthy injury report for both teams, but for the Steelers just a wee bit more. And I, I think with all those factors, it's just hard to really bet on the Steelers this week to overcome that. Like I said, if we just knew Big Ben status, I, I just can't. I just can't as a Wednesday recording and good conscious do it. But all right, well, you know, hey, that's our week 11 NFL picks there. We only disagreed on two. We had a Cajones pick there with you saying that the Cardinals will win on the road 
in Seattle, despite uncertainties at quarterback. I'm going in there with the mentality, desperate team wins. We disagreed on the Cowboys-Chiefs game, which is a game that I think can also go either way. I think that that may be the game of the week, which I think if NBC had the opportunity to rethink who they chose for the Sunday night football game, they would have gladly swapped in Chiefs-Cowboys as opposed to Steelers-Chargers, given what we know now. We had a lengthy discussion, obviously, on Texas football. I'll be back in a couple weeks to tell you again why they should fire Steve Sarkeesian. <laughs> and let's see i think we also had some more breaking news. yeah we talked let's about the the b- b- breaking uh, news corbin burns wins the national league cy young so we had both our cy young winners announced on this podcast as well so how about that that's fun yeah the cowboys chiefs one i think they would take it but this is one of those that uh joe buck and troy aikman will be taking the reins for us this week on uh the cowboys versus the chiefs on fox america's game of the week 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 what's the best game we got going on in the college football this week ah yes of course we have talked about this on take it easy which you can check out it is oregon against utah utah is actually favored against the college football playoff or uh oregon team i know michigan state and ohio state play I was this just week about to say, 19 uh, ohio point state, line? what yep that's what i was gonna say ohio state is a 19 point favorite in that game so i know they're higher ranked teams but utah is favored against a college football playoff team so if you're gonna pick one game to watch this week i can't believe i'm saying this it will be a pac-12 game between the Oregon Ducks and the uh, running Utah Utes. I don't know. I might have to watch New Mexico State versus Kentucky, see if my alma mater can cover a 36-point line. They couldn't cover a 50-point line against Bama last week. (laughs) Another case for Fire Sark, though. Next year, they could very easily start one and two as they face both UTSA and Alabama within the first three weeks. In Austin, so I might, I don't know, find a way to be around that stadium. Please. Please let UTSA win that game. Meet, meet. Let meet, UTSA meet. win that game. Yes, I mean, they might please. just do it off. Here's the thing: if you could lose to Kansas, you can lose to UTSA. If you could lose to Kansas, you could lose to anyone. You could even yeah, lose to Kansas. Yeah, but next year, next year they should have a full recruiting class in there, though, and some sophomores that are redshirted this year and things like that. They should be better next year. Like usually, the first year after you fire a coach is when everything goes downhill. That's why USC fired. Uh, Helton so early in the season was that so they they could get all the losing out of the way this year and then have a fresh new slate for whoever the new coach is see I literally went state by state after my 49 reasons listen podcast and said what states can Texas legitimately beat in college football now and it's literally like New Mexico and like the South Dakotas which I don't even know South Dakota has like a team I'm just throwing out a random state at Uh, this point the Dakotas are sneaky good though but North Dakotas North Dakotas are sneaky good though see I wouldn't want to face them right now if you could lose yeah. to kansas you could lose to north dakota state there's a principle well, here north let dakota, me tell you kansas right now, is barely an fbs school let me tell you right now south dakota state beat kansas four years ago and the university of south dakota only lost by three points this year against kansas and kansas stormed the field after beating said south dakota team by three points they did not cover the spread and yet kansas stormed the field after beating south dakota the kind of shit i'm talking about <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hopefully you're still with us at this point, you know, running into the two hour mark here. Go ahead and leave a like on this video. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and leave a five star review. If you're listening to this on iTunes, if you are in the mood for some delicious cold brew coffee, go ahead and check out CavemanCoffeeCo.com promo code slump. Yes, don't be a chump. Use promo code slump at CavemanCoffeeCo.com for 15% off your next purchase from Juju Talk Sports and Kyle Ledbetter. We need you to stay safe, happy and healthy because we'll see you on the next one.